Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country and was named a Center of Excellence by the Ohio Board of Regents in 2010. It's proud to showcase the Stephen L. Schoonover Center for Communication, a brand-new facility completed in 2015. State-of-the-art laboratory spaces and flipped classrooms are just two of the many features in the new building. Read more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some are not, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories to tell. We're talking with Sean Peoples, an award-winning documentary filmmaker. He documents strong and compelling personal stories and weaves them with major global issues and policy questions. It's a unique form of storytelling. His latest film is Broken Landscape, Confronting India's Water Energy Choke Point. It premiered at the Big Sky Documentary Film Festival in 2015 and also aired on CNN India to over 54 million viewers. Sean, welcome back. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be back with you. Uh, you've had an exciting, exciting year. It, it's, been, it's been great, it's, especially for the run of this film. Uh, we've had uh, great su success in being able to share it um, all over the country, which um, we were really happy to, to have, but also uh, be able to have it uh, screened on uh, India's CNN network um, to tens of millions of folks there. So that was, you know, not in our wildest dreams we were able to actually have the film that really looks at issues in India, uh, you know, of energy demand, of, of environmental degradation, uh, of, of policy um, on, on both of those. Um, but it was able to actually be shown uh, to the people we, we were kind of um, highlighting as well. Broken Landscape, the, the name of the film, it's got a subtitle, uh, Confronting India's Water Energy Choke Point. So I could uh, make a stab at describing the film, but, but you, you made it. So you, you take a stab at giving us a paragraph of, of what this is about. Sure. So in uh, northeast India, uh, there's a state uh, called Meghalaya, and, and there there's a cottage industry of coal mine owners who, who really are engaged in, in a kind of a, a lawless uh, extraction of the coal in a way that's unscientific as well. Uh, rat hole mining is what it's called. Uh, kids that are aged 10, 11, 12 go down into a, uh, a hole to look for, for coal and start digging horizontally. Uh, that disrupts the geology uh, of the area, and it also has a lot of environmental consequences because of its unscientific nature. Well, let's just stop r right there. Hugely dangerous, this kind of mining. I assume it's uh, less mechanized than, than most modern mining. It is is not mechanized uh, too at much all. at all. It's it's very it's 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 kind of a throwback in terms of, of extraction uh, practice. Really, it, really unscientific. But if you cut horizontally, it makes sense that you uh, take away support, and so it's got to be an extremely dangerous form of mining. 
absolutely dangerous, and, it, and it's not too extreme to say people are dying. Um, now, there, there are um, also young adults, but you, you have to be a certain size just to get into these holes. Uh, rat hole mining really does get at the heart of uh, describing what it looks like. Uh, these holes are very small, and you, you have to have um, uh, you know, a short stature just to get into where the coal can be extracted. Seeing the film, you, you focus on the mining, but you also focus on the outgrowth of the mining, the problems the mining causes. Acid mine drainage is a huge issue. Uh, you have, again, this unscientific uh, uh, practice of mining. You're not, you don't have any kind of policy to prevent uh, that mining from um, seeping into the water supply of people who are living downstream. And so their water has gone from uh, full of fish, uh, healthy rivers, uh, to now uh, you know, orange-tinted water that can't support life. Uh, and so the same water that uh, these downstream communities used for, for cooking, for, uh, for fishing, uh, is now uh, completely dead to them. Uh, and that is, uh, it's, it's, a really, it's a really big challenge um, for not only those communities, but how, how, do you, how do you take a life that has, or a river, uh, in the life of the river that has, um, has died and bring it back to life? I mean, it, it is not an easy process. So the damage really has been done. So you have a community or, or a region that is supported by this coal mining and as the film portrays both indigenous population and sort of uh, people who come in, itinerant people who come in and, and, and live off of that income stream. And then literally downriver, how far do you have people who relied on the river as their sole uh, primary, I should say, e economic base? That's right. So the economy here has really been the big, um, the big story as well. You've got an entire community that was used to farming. M the Megali State was much more of a farming agricultural center. That has switched, um, and the ratio now is greater in terms of the, the coal production and the coal economy. And so there really isn't a balance in terms of the economy. Uh, and so for uh, the communities downstream who are living in remote areas, these are rural remote areas. The one that we visited, uh, it was actually a kind of a four-hour uh, uh, drive up a mountain and back down on the border of Bangladesh. But uh, in terms of where the river's flowing, it's uh, maybe 30, 30 miles away from where, where the actual coal mining and the, the, the wells that are being dug um, you know, are located. So you have uh, a tension in the this film but between the coal mining interests. Uh, and there, I assume that you have the mine owners' interests as well as the miners' interests. And then downstream, you have the agricultural interests, the fishing interests, but also the living interests, everything from uh, bathing to, to drinking water to, to every, everything else. These people are in conflict, but how do they express it with each other? That's very interesting. I mean, you mentioned early, the, early on the mine owners and the miners. Uh, they do not have the same motivations. They are, uh, and it's interesting, we were able to spend uh, about two or three days with some of these miners, and they're on the front lines of this. Let's not forget, they are the ones actually going into the mines and putting their lives on the line. Uh, to extract coal for these coal mine owners who aren't necessarily quick to um, 
to pay them a living wage uh, and to uh, keep safety uh, in their minds when they're uh, when they're telling these miners to go into the uh, into the wells and get the the coal. So that's one really um, interesting dynamic. Uh, and then you've got these communities downstream who are really uh, they're they're voiceless in terms of the process for saying, well, how do we get this acid mine drainage to stop? How do we get these mines uh, and and the polluting uh, of the mine owners to stop? They don't have uh, recourse except for <laughs> two days before we we left to actually go to India. There is a new tribunal called the National Green Tribunal in, um, in India who uh, was just given uh, power to actually make decisions on, on banning uh, the coal mining itself in Meghalaya. So two days before we get to this, this area of India, our story completely changes. We thought we were trying to look at, you know, these three... These tensions, right? Right. The mine owners, the miners, the uh, the communities downstream. That's a good story uh, on, on the face of it there. Now you have a ban. No one can mine coal in this area. And we were on the ground for those first few days of confusion, for um, um, trying to figure out if there's Anyway, this was just going to be a blip, a temporary uh, a shutdown of the coal mining, or if it was going to be something that held sway for, well, now we're in 2015. It's been over a year. The ban is still in place, and it has disrupted an entire economy. There are illegal mining practices now because how can the state really keep track of all the different— Especially uh, in this remote area. Exactly. And so enforcement is an issue. Um, and so you, you still don't have any safety uh, uh, precautions in place. So not only is it illegal now, uh, it's illicit. You also still have um, great danger in the miners going down into these uh, into these uh, coal mines. And so um, you start to expand the stakeholders and the players. It is a larger problem than just it, these dynamics are. Are, are really interesting. And, and, you know, policy is at the core of some of this. Well, you showed in the film and, and extremely well the, the tension. And, and even though you couldn't understand the language and, and most of your film is in subtitles, the, the facial expressions, the, the anger, the hostility, the confusion, the bewilderment uh, – did you just get thrust into that environment? I mean, it, as a journalist, it, it didn't appear real safe to me. Uh, well, maybe I shouldn't go too far into the details of how safe it was. I think for us, our first day of shooting was at a 20,000-person rally against this ban on coal mining because, again, this is an entire community that is based on the economy of coal. And so you ban it, you are going to have a lot of people who are angry and upset about their source of income completely being cut off. So our first day, we are thrust into this huge rally, and that was the only way the mine owners were going to talk to, it, to us, was with 20,000 of their supporters behind our backs. And these, uh, these mine owners uh, you know, literally said to us, it's, it's not the coal, it's not the coal water. These communities, these downstream communities, are poisoning their water themselves. 
through agriculture or whatever reason. Whatever it is. It's just not our fault. It's not our fault. And so we were able to capture, I think, what is a really hard thing to capture. Um, And that is, um, you know, these these stakeholders who really did not want the ban um, scrambling, making any excuse. It just underscored the tension. And I keep going back to the word confusion. Uh, it, that was just highlighted by those few scenes. And we, we were confused. Uh, we were luckily had t- two great journalists that were taking us. They were also our, our trans- translators, our fixers. They were uh, really, really helpful for us to, to navigate not only the, the terrain and the geography, but the political situation, the uh, getting... Uh, access to people who we wouldn't necessarily be able to talk about or talk with. And so it it, it wasn't the safest uh, story to, to try to track. But I think in that time period, the confusion overtook anything, anything else. So I'm glad that came through in the film. Trying to follow a story is what you want to do and you want to be prepared for that. If you're going in to make a film, especially in a place that is not necessarily your your, your, your first home. You don't necessarily know the, the dynamics, the people, the terrain. Um, the culture, the mores, it, it, absolutely. anything. Absolutely. It, it's helpful to have two uh, journalists and guides that are going to help you get through that. But they were just as confused as us. They were, we were piecing this thing together um, every hour because, you know, there was uh, rumor and innuendo about hearings, about how this ban was just temporary. Um, and so... Fishing out what's true from what um, was really just hearsay uh, was tough as well. So everyone was confused. And I'm glad that came came through in the piece uh, because it was definitely palpable. We're talking to Sean Peoples. He is a producer at Think Out Loud Productions. He just did a new film called Broken Landscape. We'll be back after this short message. This program's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College is designed to bring forth the people who bring forth knowledge. By word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. The Scripps College of Communication is where one generation of thought leaders and storytellers opens the door for the next. Educating and inspiring each other, bridging disciplines, forging connections, and pushing beyond the syllabus and beyond limits. And because all participants belong to a far-reaching community of achievers, they reach higher and further. Not just ready for change, but hungry for it. Demanding that ideas be heard, perspectives shared, and visions realized. This is how the Scripps College moves the world forward, and this is what knowledge demands. And this is why the Scripps College of Communication exists. To make it loud, make it clear, and make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Let's get back to maybe before you got there. Uh, you pick, uh, I think people would say, 
rather obscure areas of, of the world, um, pockets of the world that really hasn't, they haven't had a lot of spotlights tur tur turned on them. But yet in doing so and bringing those out in film and, and the personal struggles and the policy issues and the environmental struggles, uh, you really uh, cast a very wide light uh, on on issues because I, as I watched the film, I thought, well, now these issues, yes, they're they're different, uh, and they they have different dynamics, but they're not all that unfamiliar to us here in southeastern Ohio with the abandoned coal mines and the the attempt to go back and mine some of them and, and the acid mine drainage and, and the issues we're finding. So yet they're obscure parts of the world. I think part of your message has to be, maybe I'm reading too much into it, the universality of, of these issues. I think the power of uh, personal narratives, com compelling personal narratives is what connects us, is what connects uh, me to the uh, community leader downstream dealing with uh, Dead River. Uh, we're able to traffic in something that's universal, and that's um, the kind of lived experience and the communication of that lived experience to get you to believe this is who I am and this is what I'm dealing with. I think film just has this way of unlocking that um, where you don't you don't need to live in that village with Kip, our, our main community leader that we look at in Broken Landscape. But hearing him tell the story, you understand what he's coming, where he's coming from, and you have these visuals to help lend you this way of being there with him. And I think that's so powerful. I think we need that so much more, um, especially in um, the policy communication space. The, there are so many obscure topics or topics that combine in very dynamic ways with issues. I mean, we're looking at energy demand, we're looking at environment, we're looking at um, you know how people deal with um, the lack of policy in that area to protect them. How do you start to begin to tell that story? And we really have to get to the personal level because that's the way we get an entry point. And without that entry point, I think what you have is just a lot of information, a lot of obscure stuff to, to, to kind of pull through. And that's why I really believe the, I think, um, policy communications, even in Washington, D.C., are starting to move so much more toward telling these personal narratives to make it clear, to give you a sense of place. Uh, and I think that's only a good thing. With technology being so much cheaper now, you can create a, a film that's um, – in HD without bringing, you know, seven, uh, seven filmmakers to a location. Even on your phone if you have to. <laughs> I tell you what, I mean, and, that's, and that gets back to what? The story and the craft of story. I think, you know, a lot of technology is out there, and we can use it and we can put all the bells and whistles on it, and it can, be, it can look amazing, but is it a good story? And do you have a sense of how to tell a story, what that craft of storytelling is? I'm new to it, and I think storytelling is a real big buzzword, and I think it gets thrown around. But I really do believe that if you are able and willing to become a better storyteller, that is going to be a currency that, that doesn't fail you in, in any location. Interesting. In this film, uh, you practiced um, a 
kind of neutral storytelling. Uh, you told the narratives of the miners, the narratives of the owners, the narratives of the people who, who lived downstream. The one I saw was 13 minutes and 28 seconds, so it was perhaps a, a condensed version. But you ended, I ended, understanding the points of view of each of these groups but f having an overwhelming sense of frustration that there were no answers. But yet, I assume that's the reality of the situation. You weren't there to advocate a point of view. You were there to basically stage set uh, for, for the policy issues that need to be addressed. And I think this is the kind of story that um – and when you think about the different kinds of storytelling options you have and when approaching a story like this, I think um, you want to go with the one that's most compelling. And for us, the most compelling was, well, we've got all these different stakeholders saying, saying these things, point, pointing out their positions, and they're doing it really well. Um, and so this is a film where it's easy for them to put them on screen and just have them convince you. I mean, I think this is where... I'm really convinced that the miners and the community downstream really have it bad. That's also reinforced by having the uh, ability to show the mine owners saying these people poisoned their own water. And I don't believe a word of what the miners say. So you get that perspective. And I'm going to go ahead and mine regardless what the policy is. And I'll always find some kid to go down the rat hole, right? Absolutely. And, you know, this is also another story where there is no answer. Uh, there was no answer then. And, you know, a lot of movement has happened in that region in the last couple of months. The state of Meghalaya just uh, submitted a plan on how best to go about lifting the ban, safety precautions, a more scientific way of, of uh, extracting coal. However, in the last couple of days, there, are, there have been indigenous groups who have said, no, 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 this is, this is completely trampling on land rights issues, so this plan is moot for us. So we're still here, and it's, it's 2015, it's November, there hasn't been movement in any direction, in any way. I watched the film for the first time with uh, a, a group of students in, the, in an environmental sciences seminar, um, and it, it, I think they struggled with the film because there were no answers. Uh, I think we're, we've become so attuned to finding uh, answers in film or perhaps overly simplistic solutions and not looking at the gravity or the breadth of an issue. And, and this film really focused on the gravity and breadth of an issue and the fact that there were not answers that were easy uh, seemed frustrating to these the young people who were watching it. That's good news to me. I think we want to have some kind of emotion, some kind of reaction after a film like that. For us, it's always been about starting conversations. They're 10-minute they're films. This is a 13-minute piece. I, I was going to ask you about the, the format. Uh, the 13-minute piece, it fits beautifully into a, a, a spot where you it, it acts as a setup for further conversation. Is that part of the purpose of why you did the, the timing? I think there were a lot of different things we were looking to – we needed it to be web-friendly. We wanted it to also have play in festivals. We thought, well, we could keep telling this story, but 
making it really tight and getting it yeah. the external uh, validation that we wanted. We wanted to have it also be um, able to play on uh, uh, CNN. So <laughs> that was a really big boon for us. Um, there are so many things that go into deciding what the what the format's going to be. And for us, that's a really healthy conversation. But I think it also, the conversation after that film, I hope, was longer than 13 minutes in your oh, class. Oh, it was. <laughs> and it I was. think that for us, that's, that is one of the big takeaways uh, for, for wanting to keep doing this, wanting to keep telling these, because this is not the only story looking at energy demand and environment and all these different other issues. They're all over the place. Two things that I observed, and perhaps these are just my own uh, perceptions. The film seemed dark to me in, in the lighting, which added to the gravity of the issue. And the music sounded like funeral dirges. Uh, I don't know whether it was original music or what's your decision making, but were both of those conscious decisions? Both of those were conscious decisions. I actually, in my former life, ran a record label, and one of the <laughs> artists I had, Aaron Thompson, was um, our main uh, songwriter for that piece. And uh, my uh, co-filmmaker, Michael T. Miller, was able to uh, communicate to Aaron Thompson the kind of feel that he wanted. And and for, for Michael Miller and I, that is a huge portion of these films. It's not just visual. It's an immersive experience. That's how you have to approach these. They're so dynamic. The lighting, that those were little decisions. This is going to be a, a big rally. We need it to be lit in a certain way so those black banners these, these pr protesters are holding up are as black as can be. Uh, and then when we're in the midst of a, of a, a period of the, the, the film, Act 2, Act 3, we want those colors to pop accordingly. So that's the beauty in filmmaking. That's you have so much control in some ways and so much, you know, so little control in other ways. And you want to try to figure out what's going to make the most compelling thing. And it's not just the story. It's all the accoutrement around as well. We just have a couple of minutes left, but I want to get to the CNN part. How did CNN India pick up on this? And, uh, you know, when did they show it to how many people? Give us some background on that. Sure. And I think, uh, you know, so this this film was done for uh, the Woodrow Wilson Center. And uh, we were really thinking before we did production, how are we best going to leverage the promotion of this? I mean, that's a really big part. We don't want it to sit on a URL at all. And we really do want to put time, effort, and money into the quality so that if there is a chance to get it seen uh, at a, in a wider um, audience, we will take that. And so we were able to hook up with a Humphreys fellow who was in town in Washington who was also affiliated with one of my colleagues. And, and she said, oh, this is a good story. I'm going to take it to my producers. The producer said, okay, this is great. We just need it to be four minutes longer <laughs> to fit our format. Uh, and so uh, Michael uh, T. Miller and I, the, the co-filmmaker, were able to, to kind of talk through what we could add. Um, and so we were able to fit that format. You know, nightly viewership uh, at CNN, IBN is, is around 54 million. And we had it playing throughout the World Environment Day and the weekend uh, that, uh, that followed. So it, it uh, premiered on a Friday night at, uh, I believe, 8 or, eight or 9 o'clock in, in India. Prime uh, time. Prime time. So it was great. We were able to really get, um, I think, that dialogue in the place where we wanted it to be. Uh, and so there's a Facebook page now that has updates on all of this. The, they used a lot of the footage from our film all, all in that uh, Facebook group. So it continues to be uh, a story that resonates there, which is 
all you could hope for. In a minute or so, what's next for you? What's next? I think right now, looking at different um, locations that have similar dynamics, but obviously different cultural or or different story potential. Uh, the Choke Point Project is is still something that um, uh, we want to look at uh, exploring. This Broken Landscape film was done under that umbrella. So there are a lot more stories to tell. I think we just want to get out there and tell them. Choke Point concept being that where two conflicting policy, uh, policies or, or lifestyles run against each other? This is kind of this water, energy, food nexus. So and our colleague at the Woodrow Wilson Center, Jennifer Turner, uh, works with a group called Circle Blue, a, a water-focused NGO. And so they've been telling the story of how these uh, different topical dynamics have been playing out on the ground in China. Uh, and we just had some stories in India. This broken landscape story was based on um, original reporting by Keith Schneider at Circle of Blue, um, who was able to uh, also help us with the pre-production. So there's still a rich amount of stories to be told uh, among that group of collaborators. We've been talking with Sean Peoples, a documentary filmmaker about his films, especially his latest award-winning film, Broken Landscape, Confronting India's Water Energy Choke Point. We want to thank you for listening to Spectrum. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Next on Spectrum, we will talk with Ira Flato, the host of Science Friday on Public Radio International. Each week, he makes science, technology, health, space, and the environment understandable to about 2 million listeners. For more information about Spectrum, go to wob.org.